As we begin to emerge from this long pandemic, it helps us to remember that we are not the first to endure such isolation or fear. An important moment for our ancestors in faith came just after 600 BCE, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylonia, raised the city of Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and sent the Israelites into exile. They struggled there for decades, not knowing how long their isolation and suffering would last. Yet as the prophet Jeremiah predicted, their captivity did not last forever. Fifty years later, King Cyrus of Persia permitted the exiles to return to their homeland and rebuilt the house of God. Hear the beginnings of their return as it comes to us from the book of Ezra, the first chapter. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the king so that he sent a herald throughout all the land. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has changed me and charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of these among you who are of his people, may their God be with them. You are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem, to Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors, in whatever place they may reside, be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. The heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God has stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with animals, and with valuable gifts, besides all that was freely offered. King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And this was the inventory. Gold basins, 30. Silver basins, 1,000. Knives, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Other silver bowls, 410. Other vessels, 1,000. The total of the gold and silver vessels was 5,400. All these were brought up when the exiles were returned from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ken, for that. Wonderful reading. King Cyrus intended to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But sadly, the building of the temple was suspended, ironically, due to the protest of their neighbors. <laughs> but the story doesn't end there. Later, 
the new king, Darius, years later, picked up where things had left off. Listen to the word of God as it comes to us again from Ezra, beginning in chapter 6. Then King Darius made a decree, and they searched the archives where the documents were stored, and a scroll was found on which it was written, a record. In the first year of his reign, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices are offered and burnt offerings are brought. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three courses of hewn stones and one course of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Moreover, let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar stole out of the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, let them be restored and brought back to the temple, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Then the governors and their associates did with diligence all that the king had ordered. So the elders of the Jews built and prospered, and they finished their building, and the house was finished in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the people of Israel, all of the returned exiles, celebrated the return to the house of God with joy. And they offered the dedication, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And then they set the priests and the Levites in the service of God at Jerusalem as it was written in the book of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, may some word that is heard today be yours as we gather here, for it is your spirit that brings us home. And may all God's people say, Amen. Amen. I've always loved Psalm 122, the beginning of our call to worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But I can't remember a time when I was this glad. Amen. It's felt like exile. It's felt like exile. It isn't the same as what our ancestors lost in exile to Babylon. Nevertheless, it resonates. The upending of everything they knew, family life disrupted, work and wealth evaporated, loved ones separated from each other for an interminable time. One theologian puts it so well, saying, one of the overarching themes in the Bible is exile and return. And for many, the pandemic has created a visceral, personal experience of what the distance and loneliness of exile can feel like. 
Connecting online has helped, but a feeling of being scattered and fragmented has been pervasive, a, a dislocated sense of living in diaspora, longing, longing for a community. It's so true. And while many of us have experienced painful disruptions in our lives before of grief or poverty or natural disasters, we have never in our lifetime seen a global catastrophe such as this. As of yesterday, 3,709,397 deaths worldwide from COVID-19. 593,377 in the United States, 62,677 in California alone. And who knows how many lives have gone uncounted. We grieve especially with those who have lost loved ones. And and we grieve as well with everyone who's lost countless other aspects of their lives, a job that disappeared, education thwarted, a relationship that fell apart, a wedding delayed, a goodbye that was stolen, the present upended, the future yet unknown. The pandemic has been so costly in so many ways, ways we couldn't have imagined when California ordered our lockdown on March 19th, 2020. But now, now, today, The words of our first scripture lesson ring true. <laughs> the Lord has stirred up the spirit of our governors. <laughs> and word is getting out throughout the land that we are freed. Freed to return at last though our return will no doubt happen in fits and starts as it did for the exiles who returned from Babylon. Still, it's real. Our return has begun, evidenced, evidenced by you who are here. We're starting to be freed freed to return our children to study at school. Praise God. Freed to return to work that's been suspended, the work of music and the arts, hospitality and travel. We're freed to return to see loved ones far away, to celebrate weddings and to honor at long last those who have died. Freed to hug our older relatives. Freed to hold 
the little ones we've only met on screen. And today, today we celebrate at last that we are freed in the words of scripture to rebuild this house of the Lord. After life together has been pulled apart, our sacred practices disrupted, our blessed traditions neglected, now we can finally return. And, and even though it's not rebuilding the building itself, it's rebuilding our life together. Even for those who are still worshiping at home, I pray that this feels different today, that this feels real in a way you haven't felt before, that you are with us still. It's not some performance by the leaders on the chancel. We're a community again. And I rejoice that our new tech team and AV equipment will allow us to live stream long after the pandemic is over so that everyone homebound or living far away can still have access, can still be part of our family of faith. Praise God for all of you. As we gather together again, there's so much to ponder about what we've learned, about how we've grown, about what we missed, about what we most deeply value. In this very brief time we have today, I just have one one thing to point out, one small piece from our ancestors returned from exile. Did you notice in today's scripture lesson how often they counted things. <laughs> they start by counting their valuables. Gold basins, 30. <laughs> Silver basins, 1,000. Knives, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Silver bowls, 410. Then it's the building supplies for the temple. It's three courses of hewn stones and one course of timber, and then in the end, they count the offering, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and of course, 12 male goats to have a sin offering. And they counted all of it, every single piece, every, every piece that made it possible for them to return to their life together, to rebuild their sacred space and reclaim what mattered and what they'd missed more than they could have imagined. And all that just makes me wonder. And I invite you to consider, what would you count? What would you count? We've rightly been counting the number of lives lost, the number of jobs erased, the number of families impacted by COVID and injustice and shootings and more, and we must never forget. Those are important to count. But our ancestors point us to a very different metric. What would we count as essential for rebuilding our life together again? What, what would we count that we cherish the most in this sacred space? 
What, what would we count as things that we offer in thanksgiving? What would we count as God's most valuable gifts to us, not only here, but in our everyday lives? What would we count? For there are gifts we didn't even know mattered so much until the pandemic hit us. We didn't know what mattered so much until we were exiled from this place, exiled from our life together. Allow me to close with a gift that I received late last week, a gift I want to share with you, John and Marie Lewis. It's great to see you again. They were here Friday to fold and stuff bulletins for the first time in 15 months, and you know you haven't lost your touch. <laughs> and that would have been blessing enough. It was so great to see you after such a very, very long time, but there was more. Marie brought a piece of paper that she had saved to share with me, a letter from our beloved David Burney, written in 2003 when his youngest kids were heading to college after he'd raised them largely as a single dad. The words he says remind me so much of what you said. It just rings true. He titled it Homecoming to WPC, an open letter to the congregation, and he writes, I want to thank the church, all of you, for the rich and extraordinary contribution you have made to our family's life. I came here some 25 years ago when my first daughter, Kate, was an infant. What I sought, I imagined at the time, would be relatively easy to find, a respect for the ancient traditions of the church, a ritual simplicity and grace, music that embraced and honored the rich heritage of Christianity in its many forms, most importantly, a celebration of the word, the mystery and power and grace of the Christian texts, an exploration of the history and romance and myth and truth embodied in that book of great faith. Well, that wasn't too much to ask for, he asks. <laughs> Little did I know how rare it was. But isn't that what we all seek? especially for our children, and perhaps even secretly for ourselves. David goes on to count the many blessings of these gifts, pulpit and choir, communion and prayers, but then he goes on to say this. Unexpectedly, we found something larger than all these elements something more profound, more providential, something that I didn't even know we sought. We discovered a community. 
Of course, none of the things I was seeking could, could have come to exist without the embrace, the support, the need, both physical and spiritual, of individuals gathered together, the community, that flock, and what a flock. Here were people who were not simply bodies in the pews around us, people with whom a wave or a casual greeting might be exchanged on the side porch after the service, but a community of concerned and compassionate and caring people who embraced us as a family and who during our most difficult hours reached out in so many ways who thought and asked about Peter, Molly, and Kate, who let them know they were important members of the community, people who asked Molly, whose hair I had so clumsily braided, who did your hair this morning? You look so pretty. And it made her smile. Friends who complimented their first tentative solos in the choir, Peter's pure, sweet soprano rising over their joyous voices. People who made a fuss over us lighting the advent candles. Brave souls who came to dinner and endured my curious cooking and gave us these bruised children and their bewildered dad a sense of being a family and the knowledge that we would endure. David closes with these words. I know that my children will carry within them wherever their adventures take them, a resonating joy in the great music of the church. I know the splendor of the word abides in them and the wonder of the reenactment of the ancient rituals that recall the mystery of faith remain part of their being. But perhaps most important, they carry with them a sense of their own value, a realization that they are loved and cared for. And for all this, for providing solace and support and challenge, for creating a home of grief and joy, a celebration of the soul, I am deeply grateful to all of you, grateful for your care the power of your love for your welcome into your community. Beloved in Christ, it is time. It's time for our return from exile. It's time for our homecoming. Yes. And may it be a time to count our blessings, to ponder what we would count as most precious 
of God's gifts that we find in this sacred community.